Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening as your children during this time of Advent, aware of your great love for us and your mercy. We ask you to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us to help us to be aware of your presence with us this evening. Open up our minds and our hearts to be able to listen to your word and to live the way you call us to. We ask this in the name of Jesus the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Father. Our speaker tonight, Father Kevin Walsh, was born in Detroit and attended Catholic schools in Warren and Madison Heights, Michigan. He graduated in 1987 from the finest educational institute in the United States, Christendom College. After receiving his priestly formation at Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland, Father Walsh was ordained by the late Archbishop John Keating on May 16, 1992. Father Walsh has served as parochial vicar at St. Rita in Alexandria, St. James in Falls Church, and as pastor at St. Philip's in Falls Church. He was appointed by Bishop Paul Laverde as pastor at St. Anthony of Padua in Falls Church this last year. And I am very excited to introduce him to you because it's taken some, I think, about two years of begging for him finally to give way and, uh, and come to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Please join me in welcoming Father Kevin Walsh. Thank you very much. Um, oh, I took your notes. Yeah, exactly. I took his notes. I think I, think I was going to need these. Thank you very much. I hope I can live up to that uh, great introduction. Thank you very much, Deacon. Uh, as you know, our topic tonight is on Maccabees. As you probably know, Hanukkah is coming up very quickly. Does anyone know when Hanukkah is this year? It's beginning of the night of the 20th, as you know. With, we follow liturgically, just as the Jewish people, as soon as the sun sets, we understand that that day is over and the new day begins. And so we'll understand a little bit the roots of that celebration of Hanukkah, the, the rededication of the temple. We're going to be looking at both 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Just a brief word, and I know this is not a course foundational on Scripture, but just a brief note on what it means to be a deuterocanonical book in Scripture. A canon basically means a list of the approved books in Scripture, the Word of God. In some of the early lists, for example, in the Jewish canon, it was not there. When the Catholic bishops got together, they said, this is an inspired work of God. It was, in a sense, on the second list, is what deuterocanonical means. It doesn't mean that it's less inspired than any of the other books. These two books are two of the seven books or parts of books that Martin Luther first did not accept. We also didn't accept the letter to James for a while, so we could say eight letters, but eight books. But one of the reasons that he gave for not accepting them was he said, well, Hebrew was a sacred language in the Old Testament. Greek is a sacred language in the New Testament. This wasn't always recognized by the rabbis or by different people. And so it will be interesting, as I'll mention in the talk, that certainly we know that the first book of Maccabees was originally written in Hebrew. If you've ever worked with two different languages and you listen to something in translation, but it's overly literal, someone doesn't know the target language very well, you can pick it up very quickly. For those of you who might know Spanish, if you heard someone say to you, uh, how many years do you have? And you say, okay, I think they're trying to say, how old are you? Uh, but that's literally how you'd say it in Spanish. And so you can see that in the Greek translation that uh, has come down to us today that, that we, we use. I'm going to go over just a little bit of the history, and I don't want to get bogged down too much in it, but we can't ignore it to understand these two books. We'll look at the at first Maccabees, and it's going to cover a time period from 175 B.C. Almost all the dates that we're going to look at today are going to be B.C. I'll just mention the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem briefly later on. And it's going to begin with a Seleucid ruler. His name was Antiochus IV Epiphanes. What does Epiphanes sound like? Epiphany, which means a manifestation, precisely a manifestation of God. So once again, we have one of these rulers who would like to claim that he's divine. We see that later on with other people who go crazy 
You see with some of the Roman Caesars uh, and also uh, this ruler as well. You'll remember maybe from studying universal history, remember Alexander the Great in the 300s BC. He dies. He doesn't have any children to divide his kingdom up, uh, his empire up among them. So he has three different generals. So it's split among them. And this becomes, and the, the Seleucids become in that part of the world, uh, the former part of his empire, the descendants of one of his generals. So it's going to go from 175 BC until the installation of John Hyrcanus I, uh, one of the descendants of the Maccabees, as the high priest of Jerusalem in 134 BC. It's going to cover the careers of all the Maccabees, Mattathias, then his sons Judas, Jonathan, and Simon. Second Maccabees, on the other hand, is not sort of a second part. It's not like these are two parts, part one and part two. They're going to overlap. It's going to cover a shorter period of time. It's going to be from the last years of Seleucus IV, roughly around 180 BC. He reigned from 187 to 175, till the Maccabean victory over the Seleucid general Nicanor in 160 BC. So it's going to be a shorter amount of time. It's only going to look specifically at Judas, whose nickname was Maccabeus. Judas Maccabeus gives the name to these letters. Does anyone know what the term Maccabeus means? Hammer. That's the most commonly understood etymology of the word is hammer or hammerhead, probably referring to his heroism, his steadfastness and his faith. Again, we're going to go back now to Maccabees 1 for a second. Originally written in Hebrew. It's very interesting, of, again, of those seven books or parts of books that weren't accepted or not in the so-called Protestant Bible. We found out that probably four for sure were written in Hebrew and probably a fifth one. We just were reading them in translation in the Greek. It was written around 100 B.C., shortly after the death of John Hyrcanus, just to put it in, in context, so not too long after the events. Second Maccabees is going to have a different focus. It subordinates the military exploits to spiritual martyrdom. We're going to look probably a little bit more at, at, at Maccabees, second Maccabees today. The heroes are ordinary Jews who remain faithful during persecution. For any of you who go to daily Mass just about a month ago in the cycle of readings, I think it's in the 33rd or 34th week of ordinary time during the odd years this year, we read from those Book of Maccabees, and I think there was only one reading from First Maccabees, maybe they came back to it, maybe two, and then almost all the rest, the familiar stories about the seven brothers, about the elderly man, Eleazar, those are all going to be from Second Maccabees, these stories of heroism as regards the faith. Judas is the Maccabee who most defended and advocated for the faithful. So 2 Maccabees is going to focus on him. We're going to see the primacy of the spiritual protest over a call to arms, over the military part. They're really going to emphasize that. We're going to see the viewpoint from those who are called the pious or the Hasidim. You still have today people called the Hasidic Jews. You're going to counter this injustice and religious persecution with spiritual resistance. We're going to see that emphasis in 2 Maccabees. There was a man, I think his name was Jason of Cyrene, who had written a five-volume work, and this is a summary or a digest of that. So they take different excerpts from his earlier work. And it's finished before the Feast of Dedication, or today what we'd say Hanukkah, uh, in December of 124 B.C. To understand again some of the background, we're going to look at some different groups of people. I've used the word Seleucid. That can be like, what? S-E-L-E-U-C-I-D. So to understand a little bit who they were and their empire. Of course, the main figure here is going to be Antiochus IV Epiphanes. It's funny in that when you read it in Maccabees, it'll be the so-called Epiphanes, or the, the self-styled. There'll be different ways that they translate, but clearly the author didn't believe he was a manifestation of God. He was just saying in his arrogance, he was arrogating that, that title to himself. Seleucus himself was the son of Antiochus, one of Alexander's generals. So you get Alexander, Antiochus, and then Seleucus is his son, and then we've got descendants. I don't want to go again in too much of the minutiae of all the different uh, descendants and the power struggles and the intrigue, but occasionally we'll have to mention it. He eventually became a rival of Ptolemy for control of Palestine, and his descendant, Antiochus II, the Great, conquered the area. Around the time there was a power struggle, often we'll see in the book of Maccabees, they're fighting over the office of high priest. It's just really sad that it comes to the point that it's being bought and sold. And if the Greeks have this power, 
than among the Jews. They'll see who can offer more money, who can offer more influence, who can bribe more. I was reading in one of the sources that I looked at, it said it's really important to remember when we read Maccabees, this is not just a fight between Greeks and Jews. That's how it can often be presented, it be slightly oversimplified. But there's also a civil war going on between observant Jews and Jews who are pretty much giving up on their faith, secularized Jews, if you will, that they were willing to become Hellenized. I'll use that term, it means Greekified, to take on the Greek customs, uh, the pagan customs as they were at the time. So in, in some of the power struggles and the intrigue, Antiochus IV deposes Onias, O-N-I-A-S, the second from office. Later on, Jason, his brother, buys the office. Jason promotes this Hellenization, or this Greekification, of Jerusalem. He even changed the name of Jerusalem for a while to Antiochia. And he started a gymnasium. Were the Jews just against uh, exercising? Any, anyone know why they would have been against a gymnasium? Anyone has studied, studied Greek? What does gymnos mean in Greek? Naked. Naked. Yes, we've got some Greek scholars back there. So for the Jewish people, they had the understanding that has come to fullness in Christianity that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit the sense of modesty. And in the gymnasiums was the place that, of course, only the men would go to exercise, to have different athletic contests, but they wouldn't have any clothes on. They sound very strange. I mean, even today we'll try to have, you know, very loose-fitting clothes and things like that, but their understanding was, you know, you just... And so this was totally alien to the Hebrew culture and also to the Hebrew faith, uh, that it was just not respectful uh, of the body as created by God. So he, he started a gymnasium. He advocated suspension of rigorous observance of the law in favor of the Greek games, the primitive form of the Olympics back then, and other forms of culture. Antiochus IV then replaces Jason with Menelaus, who offers him more money and had more influence. So you see, it's not a high point for the office of the high priesthood at that point in time. The high priest becomes more a representative of the Seleucid king than a religious leader of the Jewish people. That hereditary priesthood that was going on later on, they won't even follow the hereditary rules a little bit after that. In 169 BC, Antiochus IV plunders the temple treasury. Again, I'm skipping over some of the details, but the Romans then force him to restore what he captured. He returns, but he slaughters some of the Jews who had risen up against Menelaus at the time. He's basically their stooge. The high priest is the stooge for the Greeks. Some of the more faithful Jews were reacting against that and resisting that. This next part is going to be key. In December of 167 BC, the Hellenizers inaugurated the cult of the Olympian Zeus, so the pagan god, the Greek form of uh, Jupiter, and the Syrian Baal Shamem, so one of the Baals, and they tried to equate him with Yahweh. So it was bad enough that they were bringing in these pagan gods, but they wanted to say, this is really Yahweh, this Baal. So worship this Baal, and you're really worshiping Yahweh. Some people then went to the temple to worship the various Greek gods, such as they were, and to participate in orgiastic rites, as they had uh, there. Jewish observance was prohibited throughout the land while pagan rituals were encouraged or propagated. The Jews were forbidden to observe the Sabbath, also to perform circumcision or to follow dietary prescriptions, so the kosher laws. So some of the three things that most would identify you as Jewish. You couldn't circumcise your sons, you couldn't follow kosher, you couldn't observe the Sabbath. The second topic here is about the Maccabees as a whole, who they were. First of all, we start out with Judas, the son of Mattathias, who was a priest in Modane. He was a military leader. He carried on what today we call guerrilla warfare. You know, sometimes when you don't have the full strength, you can't attack head-on, but you try to do what you can, ambush, and, and try to make life as difficult as you can for the occupying force. And that lasted about three years. And at one point, out of fear that as he was gaining ground in the outlying countryside, in the rural territories, fearing that he would get on to Jerusalem, Antiochus IV then repealed the proscription against Judaism in the spring of 164 B.C., hoping to placate Judas Maccabeus and hoping that he would calm down and not come in and take over Jerusalem. But Judas still advanced, seized control of the city, reclaimed the temple for the Jews in December. We have the Feast of Hanukkah, spelled either with an H or today sometimes the stage, the Hanukkah, if you really want to get the guttural sound in there. Celebrates the dedication of the temple following the Maccabean victory. 
the story actually of the menorah and the oil, you had to a certain kind of a kosher oil that was pressed in a certain way and there wasn't enough of it when they went back there and they'd seen that uh, the temple had been desecrated, they'd forced uh, there being sacrifices of pigs on the altar, they'd done many other disgusting things in the temple. When they went there, they could only find one vial of oil that was still approved and kosher and it it was going to take them time to go through the whole process to press the olives in the way they were supposed to be pressed for the olive oil. It was only supposed to be enough for one day. So the story outside of the Bible that comes to us is that it was put in the menorah and it lasted for the full week, which for the Jewish people would be eight days. Full eight days celebration, the full week celebration of the rededication of the temple. That's what the Jewish people would celebrate today and also in general the heroism of the faith of the people at that time. Judas was killed in the spring of 160 BC. Of course, the numbers go down to zero as we go forward and before Christ. Judas' brother is Jonathan. In 157 BC, he ended the revolt with a settlement, so he tried to work with some of the, the powers there at the time. He was able to exercise power as a judge, in the, the Jewish sense of a judge, a leader, just as we have in the book of Judges in the countryside, but he was excluded from power in Jerusalem. The the Greeks were saying, well, okay, we'll let him have a little bit of power in the countryside. Maybe he'll leave us alone, but we're going to continue to control Jerusalem. A new Seleucid ruler later installs Jonathan as high priest in Jerusalem. We're going to see now sometimes some of them who are not from a priestly class or from the kingly tribe taking on those different uh, aspects of power, which later on are going to affect the whole Hasmonean dynasty, their, their descendants. Jonathan was later imprisoned by a different Seleucid ruler. He was murdered in 143 BC. I don't want to bog you down too much with a lot of different names of the different kings that were involved too. Another brother, Simon, Judas and Jonathan's brother, he makes an alliance with one Seleucid ruler against another. So he is trying to be shrewd politically. So try to play one off the other, like the, the Romans divide and conquer. The Syrians were involved with some of these intrigues. In 140 BC, he's recognized as high priest, commander-in-chief, and ruler, along with his descendants. But he wasn't from the kingly tribe. He wasn't, uh, from, wasn't a descendant of David, specifically. And so he's already taking this on to himself. Jewish history later on will say that that is in part what contributed to the Hasmoneans, just as you get to King Herod later on in the time of Jesus, really going off the straight and narrow. Um, This becomes the Hasmonean dynasty until 63 BC when the Romans take over. So we're heading into the just a couple generations before Jesus Christ. In 134, Simon is murdered by his own son-in-law whose name was Ptolemy. Does that sound like a very Jewish name, Ptolemy? (laughs) So, I mean, you, you can see that they're living among the Greeks. Some of them are intermarrying, and his son-in-law, to curry favor with the Greeks, then kills his own father-in-law. Now we'll look at the Hasmoneans. We have the, the Maccabeans, and now their descendants become the Hasmoneans. We have John Hyrcanus I, who's the son of Simon. That's where, remember, I said First Maccabees ends, when John Hyrcanus I is taking over. He conquered neighboring areas and imposed circumcision and observance of the law. Not a very Jewish thing to do, just like it's not a very Christian thing to do to force people to get baptized. It's supposed to be a free will choice. So we're already seeing the the king begin to deviate even from the principles of Judaism. As the Greeks came in and forced Hellenization, well then we're going to come in and force Judaization. Well, no, that's not, you don't do what your enemies do when what your enemies have done to you is wrong. There's uh, many successors at that point, a lot of intrigue, murder, deposition, uh, people being deposed um, until 63 BC when the Roman general Pompey resolves the disputes. They're like fighting, they're trying to see, can we get the Romans on our side, can we get the Syrians on our side? And they thought, fine, oh, we'll come in, we'll, we'll come in. And so Pompey comes in and conquers them all, and that's going to set the stage for the birth of Jesus Christ, of course. So Pompey comes in, just settles the, the disputes by seizing Jerusalem bestowing his approval on Hyrcanus II. I've jumped over some of the intrigue and the murders and buying of offices and everything else that's going on. It's not a pretty sight. Palestine then just becomes incorporated into the Roman province of Syria. Now it's just this tiny little outpost that no one would want. You get if you're Pontius Pilate later on, but no one really wants this tiny little province of Palestine, or even less than a province, part of the province of Syria. We'll look at now another group again, to still understand it. And this will help us understand the New Testament. 
the Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S, the Pharisees, we've heard about, and the Sadducees. You'll often hear the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, and you might think, who are they? I love doing this in the parishes that I go in. Whenever there's a really hard-hitting gospel on the Pharisees, you know, everyone knows, what does Pharisee mean? Hypocrite, right? Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, you hypocrites. And so I always say to the people after we get this hard-hitting gospel, I'll say, now were the Pharisees priests or lay people? They were the priests. Everyone knows Inevitably, nine out of ten people, if I ask in the congregation, well, guess what? They were the lay people. Everyone, I always just find it interesting that everyone just assumes religious, hypocritical, they were the priests. No, no, no question about it. But actually, we'll see the Sadducees were the priestly class. But anyway, let, let's look first at these different groups. They shaped Palestinian Judaism very much until 70 AD. Everyone knows what happened in 70 AD, right? Destruction of the temple. You could argue in a certain way that Judaism is an essentially, substantially different religion since 70 AD. They, they don't have a temple anymore. It was an essential part uh, of their faith to be offering up sin offerings, animal sacrifices, but, but that will go in a different direction with that. So that's when the Roman legions of Titus destroy the temple in Jerusalem. The Essenes and the Pharisees developed out of the circles of the Hasidim, the pious who on religious grounds generally opposed the Hasmonean policies. So we have the Essenes and the Pharisees did not want to cooperate with the Hasmoneans. So they didn't want to cooperate, for example, with King Herod, right? He wasn't from the dynasty of David. He had no right to be king. That's why later on, when you can see in the Gospels, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were natural enemies, become bedfellows just because they both loathe Jesus Christ so much. Okay, I won't mention political parties, but it would be like, you know, two political parties coming together. You know, they naturally hate each other, but their hate for someone else, a third party, is so much stronger that they make common cause. They become allies or friends just to destroy that other person. We see that's part of human nature. The Sadducees, on the other hand, grew out of the upper-class Jewish families. You see this sometimes with the hereditary priesthood, uh, associated with the high priesthood. And they were sympathetic to the Hasmonean rulers. We'll see why they were a little bit sympathetic to them. They were sons of Zadok, Z-A-D-O-K. You know, Hebrew is generally written with three consonants. And that's the root of the verb, of the noun. And then you just have to know the breathing spots in between what today we would call the vowel sounds. So Z-D-K, Z is the same as the S. The K is the same as C. So we get Sad Sadducees out of Zadok. So they're the descendants of the pre-exilic, before the exile into Babylon, around 587 B.C. Before the exile into Babylon, they're from that family of priests. As members of the Jewish aristocracy, the Sadducees preferred the privileges and security of association with the Hasmoneans, the Hasmonean high priests. So even though the high priest office has been suborned, it's been purchased, people have bribed to get into it, there were certain privileges to associate with the establishment, the people who had the money. Pharisees and Essenes, remember, we can't have anything to do with the Hasmoneans, with, with those kings. They're not legitimate Davidic kings. And then we have the high priestly class who says, well, this ain't so bad, you know, just turn off my conscience every now and then, but we got a comfortable life. They tolerated the Hellenistic culture imposed on Jerusalem by the Seleucids. Imagine that, they were Hellenizing, Greekifying the people, taking away their faith, and some of the high priestly class was just going along with it, saying this is okay. They also, just as a footnote, because we'll hear you know, later on Paul and the Acts of the Apostles get them to play one group against the other, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they accepted only the written Torah. Everyone knows what the Torah is, right? The law the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So that's all they would say they accepted because some of the other writings came later, the writings of the prophets, the Psalms, the, the wisdom literature, as we would call it, some of the other ones. So this led to their denial of angels, resurrection, and an afterlife. So the high priestly class did not believe in those. Remember Jesus at times when they tried to trap him, saying, you know, 
there was a woman who had seven husbands, and each one of the seven husbands dies. In the afterlife, whose husband will she be? And he says, you don't even understand. In the, the life to come, you neither marry nor are given in marriage. There's no procreation, physical procreation that goes on in heaven. And so he says, God is the God of the living, not of the dead. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. The Pharisees, the, the word for them comes from paras, P-A-R-A-S. In Hebrew, it means to divide. They were the lay people. I'd like to point that out. They were the lay people, very conservative lay people. They wanted to be pure from everyone else. They wanted to be cut off. That's what divide means. It's like we'll cut ourselves off from everyone else to make sure we don't get contaminated by the Gentiles or even the non-observant or poorly observant Jews. So there's a bit of spiritual pride that can get there. The people who really get it, so to speak, in the Gospels are always the religious people. You know, the religious leaders, I sometimes think when I'm reading it, but also I'll sometimes say to the people at the Daily Mass, I don't know why they still keep on coming back to my Daily Mass, but I'll say, you know, this Gospel is for us. We're the religious people. The Lord is really speaking strongly to the really religious, to the devout, that there's always the danger of spiritual pride to think that we're better than everyone else. And it seems that at times that's more dangerous than being a prostitute or a tax collector. The Lord will sometimes say, prostitutes and tax collectors are getting into the kingdom of God before you. Sometimes say my parish is, what if I said that to you? It's like, wait, 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 the collection's coming. Okay, don't, 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 don't get too upset here. But, you know, he's saying this, I mean, he'll go to someone's home and eat dinner, and then you see how he talks to them. You know, I'm surprised he got invited back, you know, sometimes. But, He'll speak to them very strongly. But it's always because sometimes the obvious sins, being a prostitute, a tax collector, being a traitor to your own race, will require a lot of rationalization and justification in your mind, a lot of energy to, not, to convince yourself that you're on the right track. But spiritual pride can be so subtle, we cannot even notice it. You know, we can know all about Jesus without knowing Jesus about really living him in our lives. So the Pharisees were the separatists. They wanted to cut themselves off from everyone and everything that was not holy according to the prescriptions of the law. They resisted the imposition of Gentile or Hellenistic manners on Jewish society. They followed traditions, the sayings of the fathers, as they called it, which applied the law to specific life situations. They did believe in the existence of angels, the resurrection of the body. The Essenes, very interesting group. They say that John the Baptist certainly would have had some contact with them, maybe was even part of an Essene community at some point. They were descendants of those who had resisted the Seleucid persecution of Jerusalem. They wanted to separate themselves from the Gentiles even more than the Pharisees, so much so that they went out into the desert, the Judean desert by the Dead Sea. They established, at least we know, one community at Qumran. If you've ever heard of Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls. They formed a faithful remnant in anticipation of the end times. They said, you know, this is going to be it. You know, the, the world is getting so bad, it's just going to end. So we're going to be ready. Their community, Qumran, was destroyed in 68 AD, just two years before the destruction of Jerusalem. In 1 Maccabees, we see that they're following the, the storyline, the, the point of view. is following more the, the beliefs of the Sadducees and the Hasmoneans. More, it's a military account chronicling what's going on. Two Maccabees is going to follow more the Pharisees, the Hasidim. Now we'll look at the actual text of 1 Maccabees. As I mentioned earlier, it follows a chronological outline. It's going to say what happened. Uh, when you read it, you might think that everything that's happening happened in a few weeks. But remember, it's covering about 40 years. So you might say the Jewish people were at peace, and then the next sentence is saying, but then, well, five years could have gone on in between those two sentences. They're just not actually saying how many years have gone on in between them. It's going to talk about the oppressor, Antiochus, and it's going to talk about those who resisted the oppressor, the Maccabeans, Mattathias, Judas, Jonathan, and Simon. It's, in a sense, a secular work. I know it sounds funny because it was from the point of view of the Sadducees, but priestly class had gotten pretty secular at that point. It was concerned, we can see, about international politics, national power struggles, guerrilla warfare, but it's still the Word of God, and we can see that it does point out that the people of God are called to live out their faith within the political tensions of the real world, sort of recognizing what's going on in the real world. It has a certain vision of sacred history. I'm just going to go over this very quickly. If you pick up the illusions, that's great. If you don't, that's okay. 
A lot of times in 1 Maccabees, it's going to refer back something going on now with a new hero of the faith and sort of tie it to something that happened earlier on in the Old Testament. So, for example, there's going to be allusions to the Exodus, the establishment of the kingdom of Israel. Mattathias, in a sense, is presented as a new Phineas, purifies the people by punishing them for worshiping false gods, the gods of the foreigners. That had happened earlier on. In a sense, he's also a new David. He leads them out into the desert and assembles a force that will eventually take control of Israel. Judas Maccabees, in a sense, is like a new Moses at times. He leads the people through the same hostile territory of ancient Bashan, just as Moses had done previously. He's a new Joshua when he reconquers the land. And after he does that, he executes the curse of destruction. Now, it's very hard for our modern mentality to understand this, but the, the Lord would say, once you conquer that land, you can't even take their wealth. You don't intermarry with their women. It's just total destruction. Otherwise, you'll be influenced by them. You'll be pulled and drawn into their religion. And then so also uh, Judas does the same thing. Uh, the instructions that he gives for conquering very much reflect Moses' exhortations on the plains of Moab. Also, like Jonathan and David, he leads a small army out against a superior strength. So it's sort of like David and Goliath, but now it's the Maccabees and the Syrians. They become like the Goliath here. Repeatedly, they'll say, well, there were 6,000 soldiers with the Maccabeans against 20 or 30,000 on the other side. And yet, miraculously, they win. The people, just as in Samuel's day, gather at this place, Mizpah, to repent, pray, and unite with their leader. Um, at one point, they even mentioned, I was just reading a section, 2 Maccabees today, and it mentions that, um, I think it's Judas at this point, is exhorting the people, and he says, Remember with our ancestors when we won with the victory, the Lord defeated Sennacherib's troops. Well, man, Sennacherib, Sennacherib, what, Father? You know, I mean, that may not be an illusion for us, but it was for them. It would be like for us if we were to say something like, remember the Battle of Gettysburg? It's, it's seared into our national consciousness as people from this country. The Jewish people would have known the sacred history from, from the Old Testament text. Now they're going to see the ultimate destruction of the Syrian general Nicanor and his army, even though, again, they're outnumbered. Just like Joshua's campaigns, the Maccabean insurrection is sparked by reverence for the first commandment, which prohibits idolatry. Epiphanes had claimed to be God. He made them worship statues. He profaned the temple. So they were moved by religious zeal, just as others were before. The zeal for the law. Judas purifies the land and reclaims the temple as the unique dwelling place of the Lord, just like Joshua as well. We see also the achievements of the Maccabees are the fruit of prayer and reverence for the law. When you read it, especially in 2 Maccabees, well, I'm looking at 1 Maccabees, but uh, in both, I guess, but more in 2 Maccabees, you'll be reading along, and they'll say, it was because the Lord did this. And so then they'll thank God, they'll, they'll pray, they'll sing hymns and, and songs of thanksgiving. Also, they attack with prayer. They witness a victory over impossible odds. As I mentioned, after battle and triumph, they sing psalms of thanksgiving. They rededicate the temple. They're not just soldiers. They're working for religious liberty, which, of course, was intimately tied up with their national freedom as well. Especially in 1 Maccabees, 1 Maccabees, out of reverence for the name of God, they use the word heaven. Remember, the Jewish people could not pronounce the name of God out of incredible reverence for the name of the Lord. I was just teaching class yesterday or the day before. I always found it very interesting that the name of God was so sacred that only once a year, of all the people, only one person, the high priest, only after purifying himself for a week of prayer and fasting and ritual ablutions, just so they didn't forget how to pronounce the name of God, could go into the temple, but not just any place in the temple, only the Holy of Holies, and once a year could say, Yahweh. So normally they said Adonai. They said the Lord, Kyrios, in the Greek. That was the linguistic mistake for Jehovah, because people didn't even know when they saw the four letters of the name of Yahweh, they were getting the, the vowel sounds, the air-breathing sounds of, of Adonai. But another story there. And also, whenever you would take a quill, a pen, and dip it in the ink, and write out the four here, I'm going from left to right, but right to left, the four letters of the name of Yahweh, that quill could no longer be used for anything else. Ever again. You set it aside, because it had been an instrument to write out 
the holy name of God, the ineffable, the unspeakable, that which you couldn't pronounce or say. We've come a long way, right? Now we say, oh my, or, and I mean, all the blasphemies that we just say without even thinking. I don't even want to say them, but I'm sure you've heard them on TV. I mean, I'll be, you know, in the metro someplace, and I'll hear someone take the name of Jesus Christ, you know, in, in, some, in some way. And anyway, those were blasphemies among the Jews, actually punishable by stoning. That was that great reverence. They thought if it becomes too familiar to us, you know, this was the transcendent that was very much emphasized in the Old Testament. We also see a great reverence for the institutions, the holy city of Jerusalem, of course, the temple. There was this one place called the Citadel in the temple. We're not talking about a military college down in South Carolina here, okay? <laughs> it was the place where the Greeks and the Hellenizers would go. Probably a little bit like, you know, in Baghdad, you're the green zone. to just be protected. So that, you know. So that was the enclave of Hellenism in Jerusalem. But they believed that Jerusalem is the holy city because of the Lord's presence in the temple. The book that I used, by the way, I meant to say this in the beginning, I think it's out of print, by a Father Michael Duggan, called The Consuming Fire, a Christian introduction to the Old Testament. found very good. I taught the whole Old Testament once at St. Anthony's years ago when I was a parochial vicar. You can still find that online, some used bookstores. The Consuming Fire. The author's last name, Duggan, D-U-G-G-A-N. And he, after each one of his chapters, says what he calls Toward the New Testament. Okay, now how does this now help us uh, or lead us to the New Testament, to the fullness of Revelation? So first of all, we see in Maccabees, 1 Maccabees, that messianic expectation, the waiting for the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. We see that the kingdom of God already you're beginning to see. Of course, Jesus Christ is going to make it much more complete. He's going to bring it into focus more. But already you see the kingdom of God is more than a new national or political order. Not everyone understood that when Jesus Christ came. They were expecting this political leader. That the cross will defeat the power of Satan. Again, when we see the spiritual struggle. I mean, I like that phrase of St. Paul where he says, the struggle, the war we're engaged in is against powers and principalities. If we don't understand that today. We're never going to win. It's not just a political struggle. I don't want to digress too much, but I remember as a teenager, I was extremely involved in the pro-life movement founded a political or a, a group in my school. I was on the Speaker's Bureau. I led a delegation for my congressional district, went to the political action committees. I was on the Speaker Bureau for whatever they needed me to do. It was only in the seminary where I realized that was all good. I still encourage people to do that. We still have the political struggle, just like they had the military struggle. But ultimately, even if we changed the law and you still had a million and a half people a year that wanted to have an abortion, there's something wrong with that. We need to convert hearts. It's primarily a moral struggle, spiritual struggle. It's also got political ramifications. And someone just said to me, I was, I was saying all the stuff that I'd done for seven years before I went in the seminary in the pro-life cause, and another seminary instructor just dismissed it and said, it's a spiritual struggle, it's a moral struggle. I was ready, I was ready to punch him and say, no, it's more than... But I meditated and I thought, correctly understood, he's right. Still vote, still do everything else. I'm not saying don't do that, but ultimately, it's a spiritual battle. The importance of Jerusalem, of course, we see later on Jesus Christ. What does he do? He cleanses the temple. It comes either the beginning of his ministry or the, the culmination of his ministry, depending on which viewpoint in the Gospels uh, we read. Jesus takes control by his surrender to death. Very interesting. That's the power of the cross, the paradox that St. Paul will talk about. When I am weak, I am strong. We've heard it all before. It sounds like poetry. We don't always want to live it, but it's true. And it's brought out already in Maccabees. To love our enemies, to bless our persecutors, to renounce the sword, which Jesus Christ later on says in the New Testament, a paradox that, again, of the primacy of the spiritual. But he had all the power in the world when the Roman soldiers came to take him away. He says, don't you realize I could call upon legions of angels to defend me right now if I wanted to. As it says, but my kingdom is not of this world. We see in the New Testament, we see Simon the Zealot. I would say zealot is a really nice word for terrorist. I mean, I, I love the fact when you look at the 12 apostles, four semi-ignorant, semi-intelligent fishermen, you've got a tax collector, hated by Jewish people, traitor to his race, liar, cheat, thief. You've got a zealot, Barabbas was a zealot, some of the zealots were murderers. 
call them freedom fighters if you want, depending on your point of view. Terrorists, you could also call them. And Jesus says, okay, you, 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 okay. Now you're going to form the first Christian community. <laughs> you think your parishes are made up of a motley crew? <laughs> I meditate on this every night when I go home to the priest I live with in the rectory. But okay. So, <clears throat> we have a Roman centurion who's praised by the Lord. Remember the one who has faith, and he says, I'm not worthy that you should come. Now, now with the new translation, remember this? I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, right? But only say the word, my soul shall be healed. Uh, well, it's what we say in the Mass, but the Lord praises his faith. He says, not in all of Israel, after 1,800 years of revelation, have I found this much faith. Very interesting. Uh, just on that note, I once said, and you know, there's some other priests here, so if, if I'm wrong, and a deacon, they can correct me if I'm wrong theologically, this is the way at least I see it in my mind. I once said to a Jewish friend of mine, I said, I don't want to offend you, but I said, I believe that I belong to the faith that began with Abraham. I believe it came to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That's what he says in the Gospels. But it's not like we would denigrate what's in the Old Testament. The church has made that very clear. It's the word of God. We revere it just as much as we revere the New Testament. Revelation began in Ab with Abraham and it came to its fullness. Jesus didn't come to abolish, he came to fulfill. So, you know, we, we look at this ourselves too. The Lord had told them to escape, so the early Christian community escapes to the mountains. There's even historical documents that it seems there was a group of Jews, the Jewish Christians, as we, we understand, that escaped from uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. As soon as they saw the armies coming, they said, Jesus said, don't turn back. Don't go into the house, just run. Don't worry about saving some of your material goods. Just leave. So they escaped to the mountains. He spoke about the appalling abomination, just as the, the Greeks at the time of the Maccabees had put the pigs there and the statues of uh, Zeus. Later on, you're going to get the Romans come, and they're going to ransack and destroy the temple, pull it down brick by brick, um, destroying the city and the temple of Jerusalem. Also, the need to persevere in the face of trials in order for our faith to reach maturity. All that from 1 Maccabees. Now look at 2 Maccabees. Again, it's a, maybe perhaps a little more spiritual of the two. God oversees the course of history. Today we would say Jesus Christ is the Lord of history, you know, salvation history, but also history in our own individual lives. History is described from above, if you will. There's several descriptions of God's direct actions within history through visions, miracles, angelic visitations. Jeremiah appears. The high priest Onias appears at one point. We understand the thoughts, motives, prayers, dreams of the main characters, their spiritual moral lessons. They'll describe something, and they're sort of like an editorial comment to give it a spiritual or moral application. It's not so much just military history that it's a little more prevalent in 1 Maccabees. Each half of 2 Maccabees concludes with a feast to commemorate the events described. The first one, of course, being Hanukkah. The second one, called the Day of Mordecai, or in modern-day parlance, would be Purim. The, the Feast of Purim, when Jewish people dress up and celebrate that feast from the book of Esther. We see here God's interaction with his people. God allows, this is, as I was reading the second Maccabees today, you see it over and over again. God allowed this for our good, to purify us in our faith. Because we were not faithful to the covenant, because of our sins, we pray that the Lord will have mercy on us. But, but I mean, repeatedly you see that. He allows the afflictions from the Seleucids to punish his people for their sins. But repentance evokes God's mercy. At times they come together, they pray, receive God's mercy. Also, the Lord can convert even powerful opponents. Heliodorus, who first went there to take away all the temple treasury, he sees this apparition there in the temple, and he doesn't take it away. Antiochus IV, also himself at the very end in the book of Maccabees, says that, Yahweh, the Lord, is the true God. And so we see this conversion. In fact, even when I think it's the seventh son, but when one of them is dying, he says, I pray that you will recognize the one true God. So when we read the um, summarized version, the abridged version in the daily mass readings, you can't do the whole thing. You, know, you don't have the description of every single one of the seven brothers who's killed. We see a couple different times the prayers of the living can be efficacious on behalf of those who have died, even in some condition of sin. Maccabees chapter 12, toward the end. Read that extended paragraph. Part of 
our understanding of uh, purification after this life, what we call purgatory. The dead saints intercede for the living. You see that? Onias, the high priest who was killed, he prays for the Jewish people. Jeremiah appears to Judas. He makes supplication for his people. We see the power of prayer. It's always victorious and is more important than a military crusade. Also the importance of fasting, acts of repentance. It's very interesting at one point when they're talking about the temple. It says, The Lord, however, had not chosen the people for the sake of the holy place, but the holy place for the sake of the people. What does that sound like? Man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man. They have incredible reverence for the temple, but they're already saying the temple is just there because you're God's chosen people. The temple is there for you. You're actually more important than the temple. Of course, it's very much Catholic theology. Any one of you is more important, as I think Thomas Aquinas is the one who said it. Any soul is worth more than the entire universe. If you're ever feeling down, you know, think about how much you're worth to God. The observance of the Sabbath and the Word of God. You see that also in 2 Maccabees, 2 Maccabees. We also have different portraits of faith for the different people. First we see faith produces authenticity. So they'll describe those who are filled with faith in one way. Judas is a model of leadership, courage, faith. But he's also a normal family man. You see that. He's not so larger than life when he's described as like, you could be like him too. He's just being faithful to his conscience. Uh, we see the martyrs are ordinary people of all ages and stations in life. So there's Eleazar, who's elderly, remember, he's 90 years old. I, I love the story of Eleazar because it helps us reflect on scandal. We don't think about that too much anymore. They said, you know, come on, Eleazar, just bring some of your own meat and we'll pretend that it's pork and you can eat it and everyone will think that you ate pork, but you'll save your life. And he says, and what would the young people say? that old Eleazar had finally betrayed his faith? Why, to gain a couple more months of life? And he says, no. I mean, we, we've so much, we've been so overshocked and scandalized, I think, that we, we lose any sense of scandal, quite frankly. That sometimes you don't do things just because it can cause a weak person to sin. I mean, like, like Paul would say that, I love that, when he, when he talks about, remember, meat sacrifice to idols, he says, I know that idols are nothing. If you're strong in your faith, you know that idols are nothing. But a new brother or sister in Christ who's just come to Christ, if you go to their house and they sit down and they say, Paul, do you know that that was offered to the idols in the marketplace because I thought it brought them good luck? He says, oh, really? Oh, okay, then I won't eat it. For the sake of the weakness of that brother's faith. Charity is more important than just knowledge. Well, I know idols are nothing, so I'm going to eat it anyway. It's perhaps hard to translate for us. I remember... I had a friend who dealt with alcoholism. Thankfully, that's not been one of my problems. I haven't had to worry about that in my life. But whenever I would go out with him, we'd be someplace and I'd realize, oh, that's right, I think they'll take a Coke. I don't want to put him, I mean, I can enjoy my Bailey's Irish cream, you know, but it's not that important to me. What's more important is the charity to this brother or sister in Christ. The mother of the seven brothers, you almost get an image of the Virgin Mary there, standing at the foot of the cross is she is there one by one with each one of her sons. And they finally say, in a society, when you're left alone as a widow, no Social Security, no Medicare, no Medicaid, none of that stuff, you needed either your dad or your husband or your brother or your sons to protect you. Otherwise, you could be grossly mistreated in that society. And she knew, just like actually the Virgin Mary knew, and she says when they finally get to the last one, he says, convince them. Convince him, and she says, Son, have mercy on me and be faithful. She says, Look at the breast that nursed you for three years, the womb that gave you birth, that carried you for nine months. Be like your brothers. Be faithful. And what incredible faith that she had. And then it actually says at the very end that she then died after them. Razi, we don't hear so much about him because he committed suicides. He's held up in Jewish tradition as a, as a hero of the faith, but it's a little bit, uh, you know, we can't hold him up as an unadulterated model of faith because that's, you know, we would understand that instead of committing suicide, we've got to let them kill us, even though it can be more painful. The impious have character defects which stem from their lack of faith. So uh, we see Jason, who becomes an apostate, means he turns his back on the faith, becomes a high priest, 
His defect is ambition. He wants power. Menelaus was cruel to his own people. Antiochus IV, overweening pride, ruthless pride, considers himself to be a manifestation of God. Each of these men dies in forms of torment and disgrace that correspond to their vices. It's a little bit of the emphasis that there's justice meted out even on this earth. Christianity we would see that even if it's not meted out on this earth, we believe in perfect divine justice in the afterlife. God's faithful, on the other hand, are serene as they approach martyrdom with a promise of the resurrection. See, for the first time in the Old Testament, speaking several times about the resurrection, especially those seven brothers, each one of them says, God gave life to me before, and I know he'll give it back to me. Already acts of faith in the resurrection. We're much more clearly supported in our faith of the resurrection, obviously, with Jesus Christ. So this is incredible that they already are coming to an understanding of the resurrection back then. We already mentioned um, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In the New Testament, how do we see this apply? The stoning of Stephen, what is he doing? He's serene. The rocks are hitting him, the stones are hitting him one by one. He forgives those who are killing him. He already looks to the Lord. And he says, you know, I see the Son of Man, the, the right hand of the Most High. The beheading of James. James is calm and serene, but what happens to Herod Agrippa, who had James executed? He comes to a horrible end. In the book of Revelation, it's, it praises those who were suffering during Domitian's persecution. It says, even in the face of death, they did not cling to life, life right here on this earth. But they preferred eternal life. The belief in the, the resurrection of Christ, we see, again, I mentioned Mary at the foot of the cross, almost an analog of the mother with the seven brothers. Paul will say, I think it's in his letter to the Romans, the current sufferings are nothing compared to future glory. In God's final judgment that the Lord mentions, the virtuous will enter eternal life, while the wicked will experience ultimate separation from God. And we also see in the New Testament, the letters of Paul, that God brings to light the hidden counsels of everyone's heart. So those were the notes that I had, and I, I've seen the different cards, so I think I'm close to the end of my time. We'll take a quick break and then do okay. questions. Is that okay? Sure, absolutely. Okay. Thank you, Father, for your wonderful lecture. Okay, that'll help people work out. Father, uh, forgive me if you already said this and I just missed it, but the two books seem to have different emphases, the history versus the spirituality. Was it the same author? Um, well, the, the second book of Maccabees, the author himself says that he's summarizing or, or drawing a lot from a work by Jason of Cyrene, which was a five-volume work. Um, so it appears that they're two different authors. We don't know the name of either author. The Maccabees one, I think, was finished about 100 B.C., and by hints in the text, they think that Second Maccabees was finished, I believe it was 124 B.C. So there were uh, a lot of civil unrest and so forth going on at the time of the Maccabean revolts and battles between the high priests and so forth. Uh, can you make any comparisons between what was going on in those times and how the Maccabeans behaved and so forth and today? I don't know if you meant to compare it to what's going on in Judaism today and the Catholic Church today. You're just saying culture and society in general. Yeah, you're, so you're including the church. Um, I guess the commonality that I would see and want to emphasize is the spiritual struggle to be faithful to what God has revealed. And I would say conscience, but a conscience informed by the revelation of God. I, mean, I, I can give you some examples. Um, I'm on the board of directors for Catholic Charities in the Diocese of Arlington. And one thing that we look at is what is going to happen someday if the state of Virginia allows same-sex or mandates adoption in same-sex couples. It's already happened in the UK, United Kingdom, in Massachusetts, California, state of Illinois, Washington, D.C. And I've been just so impressed at the incredible revolt of our Catholic people when we've just shut down our adoption agencies and Catholic charities. I mean, they got so angry, they protested, and, oh no, wait, I'm, that was a dream, right? <laughs> I, I was sadly not surprised that there was almost not a peep out of people. Catholic, Protestant, did you hear people get really angry when Catholic charities in the state of Massachusetts shut down its adoption services after, you know, 100 and 50 years? 
People were driving to, you know, to their work. They heard it on the radio. Oh, Catholic Charities shut down its adoption services. Okay. Is there another channel on the, you know? So, yeah, we don't see a lot of Maccabees, Maccabeans in the world today, quite frankly. And the Diocese of Belleville, very sad case that, uh, I don't want to comment too much here. I'm on national TV, did you say? <laughs> I'll just say the facts is that in a couple days after uh, the new law took effect, or with in the anticipation of the new law taking effect in Illinois, they voted, majority of the, uh, their board, and they changed the name of Catholic Charities of Southern Illinois to Christian Charities of Southern Illinois. They said, we've got no problem with uh, placing kids in homes of same-sex couples. So, I mean, other bishops have said, you know, you've got to really keep an eye, because they're technically two separate entities. Catholic Charities is distinct from the diocese, something that a lot of people don't realize, but there's a board of directors. If the board were to vote, they could do something that's against what the Catholic Church teaches. If the right people aren't keeping an eye on who's on their board of directors in the Catholic Charities in their diocese, you can get a situation like happened in southern Illinois. So, yeah, I, don't, I think we need more Maccabeans today, quite frankly. Many of the books found at Qumran, the Essenes, were in Aramaic. Mm -hmm. Christ spoke Aramaic, mm -hmm. not any of those others. They probably spoke Greek too, but they understood Hebrew because they wrote, read the scriptures. What was the Aramaic culture that, would, that Christ had an Aramaic language? What was the Aramaic culture? You talked about the Essenes, and they were devout Hebrews who were speaking Aramaic, not classical Hebrew. You're saying there was a culture that we are not aware of. Have you seen a good translation of Aramaic that's in use? Right. Um, the scripture scholars all study Aramaic, Targumic Aramaic. Of course, the only thing we can look at today is the written word you know, from that time period. We, we don't have recorded conversations of the people at the time. So there's still people who speak Aramaic today, for example. It's in some of the rites of the church. I think, is, is it in the Malkite rite? Uh, no, Maronite. Okay, I, I know I've been at a liturgy, and it was either Maronite or Malkite, where I remember listening to the words of consecration, thinking these are maybe the exact sounds that Jesus said at the Last Supper. So certainly there are scripture scholars, there's other people who would study Aramaic. When we get to the Word of God, the New Testament as we have it today is all in Greek, and the Old Testament is largely in Hebrew. And we can always go back and figure out sometimes, because there's very what they call uh, Semiticisms. It's like what I was saying about, like, someone says, the house white in Washington. You know, well, then you know that they're maybe thinking in Spanish instead of the White House. So you can see that sometimes in the scripture and the translation. And it certainly is good to understand the mentality. But yeah, there's many people who would be studying Aramaic, and they have produced translations of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the other documents that we have extant today from Aramaic. Father, um, it's clear the Book of Maccabees portray an interesting incident in Jewish history, mm -hmm. but reading it, it's hard to see how it's of the same caliber as the Davidic Kingdom or, or Moses or the uh, Babylonian exile. My question is, did the Maccabean affair prepare in any specific way for the coming of Christ? The events, I, I would say, very much so contributed to it because people had to be faithful to their uh, belief. They had to hope in God, focusing especially on the temple, on the Jewish institutions, but also seeing that the human being is more important than the institution. You know, we see that same witness of faith in the stoning of St. Stephen, the beheading of James, um, the belief in the resurrection, Writings of the Maccabees would have been read by some of the people at the time of Jesus, helping some of the people anyway, the more the line of the Pharisees, to believe in the resurrection of the body. Paul, you know, probably even before coming to know Jesus Christ, would have believed in the resurrection of the body. So I, I would say that in that way it prepares it. Certainly the most foundational event for the Jewish people would have been Exodus, to this day celebrating Passover. And then they, they go back to that with the second Exodus when they come back out of the exile in, in Babylon. And it's probably at the time of the Maccabees when they're suffering under the Greeks that they're reflecting on Daniel and some of the other people who were heroes of the faith under the Babylonians. Certainly the early Christian church goes back to Maccabees and the people who suffered for their faith. To this day, I draw strength from when I read the story of the seven brothers who died for their faith, or Eleazar. You know, think about that, as I mentioned, when I think about scandal. You know, so 
certainly it influenced the early Christian church and I would say prepared some of the Jewish people. I mean, it seems historically that the majority of the Jewish people did not accept the Messiah, did not accept Jesus Christ, but it certainly prepared some of them. And I would say it even helped some of them see that it's not just a political kingdom. Thank you very much, Father. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.